Individuals and businesses with tax problems listen carefully. Do you feel like you're losing control over your finances? If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services and take advantage of the Fresh Start program and new laws that may allow us to negotiate a settlement for the lowest amount possible. Our team of tax attorneys and enrolled agents can stop collections and get you protected so you can take control of your financial future. Tax Mediation Services is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call now for a free case review and a price protection guaranteed quote. Call Tax Mediation Services now at 800-616-4080. That's 800-616-4080. 800-616-4080. This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. Coming up on this week's edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, I will be joined by Sam Kaplan to talk about some of the hottest topics in MMA, including Conor McGregor wanting an ownership stake in the UFC, Rashad Evans being denied a license by a second commission, the MMAFA sending out a tweet directed at Titan FC, and a mistake I recently saw at a local MMA show. Now, before we bring in Sam Kaplan on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, I want to let you know about our sponsor, Fight TV. Fight is your number one source for MMA, boxing, and pro wrestling video. Watch live wrestling, MMA, and boxing on the screen of your choice with just the Fight app. Download Fight free today by going to fightfite.tv forward slash radio influence four slash sam how is it going man it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked it's good to be back i you know had hoped i'd be able to come back and do a guest spot here and there and it happened a lot quicker than i thought it would yeah it's uh obviously uh, a lot of things have gone on in the world of mma over the last couple of weeks uh first off i gotta ask you how did you take in ufc 205 watched it on my tv you did you purchased it I watched it on my TV. Yeah, I purchased. It. I purchased it. Uh, you know, I uh, I was over at a buddy's house, watched it, and uh, you know, it, it was it was a great night of fights. I think that's that's the best way to put it. It was, but as a Philadelphia sports fan, it was very difficult to watch that main event. Were you I, were you like me? Thirty seconds into that fight, you realized it was over. Yeah, you know, it just. You know, I, I don't think I could really say anything that Eddie Alvarez himself didn't say. Just wasn't he didn't didn't execute a good game plan. I think Eddie Alvarez got caught up in the hype of that fight, not his own hype, not in Connor's hype, but I think that you know instead of trying to just go for a win, he was trying to go for a big win. He wanted to beat Connor at his own game, with the idea potentially that you know at least this is my theory that had he done that, had he knocked him out, had he got into a slugfest and knocked Connor out that he would have put himself in a much better 
positioned to get bigger paydays in the future than he would have had he just eked out a five-round decision. I think he wanted to beat Connor, didn't want to submit him, didn't want to win a decision. He wanted to knock him out, and he went for broke, and that strategy did not work. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, obviously a, a banner night for Conor McGregor. We'll talk about some of the, the comments that Conor made, uh, you know, following a UFC 205 and, and what's going to happen with him. There's so many other things uh, that are going on in the world of MMA. Also, uh, going to bring up uh, some comments that EJ Brooks had on this podcast. EJ was a guest co-host on here, had a lot of great things to say. Also, we'll get into uh, some of the questions and comments. Uh, do got to mention, you know, Fedor Emelianenko has signed, and, and Bellator has confirmed this to me. It is an exclusive multi-fight deal. When the press release came out, uh, the word exclusive was not in that press release, which I did. Uh, find kind of interesting, and, and some other people. Yeah, what happened to Risen's exclusive with Fedor for two fights? Where's <laughs> well, that? When, when's that second fight going to happen? Well, obviously, that's not going to happen. And uh, I, I tell you what, I don't like that. I, you know, look, I, I've said it publicly that I, I really don't want to see Fedor fight again. I don't think that's a. You know, we, we've seen Bellator kind of ease some guys into it. Boy, they're not easing Fedor into a, a fight to showcase him. I think this is potentially a bad fight for Fedor. I think it's a bad fight for Fedor. I think it's a bad fight for Bellator because Fedor's not cheap. We don't know how much it's going to cost to have him sign an exclusive with Bellator, but it's probably safe to say that he is going to be the highest paid fighter in Bellator history. Could oh. be wrong, but if I'm willing to guess, highest paid fighter in Bellator history. So from a matchmaking standpoint, and you know, as good of a talent as Matt Mitrione is, wouldn't you want to try to monetize Fedor to the maximum? Wouldn't you want to try to put him in there with a Tito Ortiz, a Rampage Jackson, even a King Mo? Go with a bigger name because Matt Mitrione, they're paying him well, but there's a very high probability that he will beat Fedor in my mind, at least in my mind. Yeah. And do you want to give Matt Mitrione that rub or do you want to give that rub to someone else? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, we got an interesting question uh, related to Matt Mitrione, and this goes to a, a comment that he had on Monday when he appeared on the MA Hour with Ariel Hawani, where he admitted that he signed a contract where he didn't know who he was fighting, didn't know the date, and didn't know the venue. And this question came from at Dwayne Barth, and he says, Is there any legal structure? that's actionable to a bout agreement with, without an opponent, venue, or time in, in relation to this. Can you ever recall seeing, you know, being a part of something along these lines of where you're telling a fighter, hey, uh, we want you to sign a bout agreement, but we can't tell you who the opponent is? You know, you could take that contract, that bout agreement that he signed, and you, you could wipe your butt with it. it it's, it's worthless. It, it is not... Uh, it's not litigated. It would. Ne it's not valid. It would never hold up in court. It was more ceremonial than anything else. You know, I'm not an attorney. Granted, <laughs> didn't take long to get that line out. Take, but take I, you a know, drink. I, I've worked with several attorneys, fight attorneys with contracts, and I think we said it on, on, on the last show that I did. In order for a bout agreement to be valid, it has to. Uh, you know, it has to have a a time, a place. A location, and you know, many attorneys will say it even needs to have an opponent's name for that to be a binding, valid agreement. So what Matt Mitrione signed was was worthless. It it was more ceremonial. It was more peace of mind to know that they had his commitment for a fight that they were about to announce. 
Yeah, and obviously it should be, uh, you know, you, you do wonder if it if it's going to, to pop a big rating. You would think it will. The UFC has... has it, it absolutely will. It absolutely will. The UFC has, has pretty much already, you know, announced the first three months. And, uh, you know, I'm sure when Bellator learned that UFC 208 is going to be on January 21st, right down the road for where they're doing Shell Sign and TORTs, I'm sure there were some people... Uh, in the Viacom offices that were, you know, kind of like, well, crap, because, you know, the UFC could certainly stack the deck that night. Um, you know, Michael Bisman came out and said that Dana White wanted him to defend the middleweight title on that on that night against Joel Romero, but uh, on, his, on his Sirius XM show, Michael Bisbing just said that, uh, you know, he's just not going to be ready to go for a, a January 21st fight. Uh, you know, it does seem like that Joel Romero is trying to, uh, do his best to talk Michael Bisming via social media into that day, but it, it does not sound like that, that it is going to happen. But, you know, I thought this was a very interesting stat that I saw uh, earlier today, and, uh, and and I retweeted it. I want to pull up the tweet. It has to do with the Bellator ratings, and, and Sam, I know that uh, I don't think there's anything you can say where people are not going to, you know, say your uh, your opinion's bias here, but I'll just mention this first comes from uh, at Jedi Goodman, who does a lot of uh, stuff in, in relation to television ratings, not just MMA television ratings, but television ratings in general. And he said, Coker's 44 Bellator events have averaged 718,000 viewers. And by the way, these are numbers uh, in the preliminary ratings, which is the live plus same day DVR. The 37 Bellator events on Spike prior to Coker averaged 703,000, and I'm sure that's and, and I'll, I know Sam, you know, I don't know if you necessarily want to speak on this, but I'll speak on it. That that number is very interesting to me, especially when you think about some of the huge numbers Bellator has pulled with the Kimbo fights, uh, with with a Tito fight and some other fights they've done. That that number really stuck out to me. I I knew that the numbers were pretty close in, in terms of the the new. Uh, era Bellator, the old era Bellator, but when you see those numbers, it's like, man, that, that's a number Viacom can't like seeing. I am going to withhold comment, Jason, because I, I am biased in that regard. I have a lot of pride in the work that I did for Bellator during my nearly five-year tenure there, pride in the work that a lot of my teammates and coworkers put forth, and you know, during my time with Bellator, I never felt like the work that we did got the recognition it deserved from the media and a lot of the MMA public. So for me to, you know, start talking about the ratings from the old regime and comparing it to the new regime, I, just, I don't know if that's going to be of any value to anybody. I, I will say this, that when you look at the ratings of, of what they are right now, I think there has to be concerns if you are Bellator in terms of, I quite frankly, I was, I was surprised their show uh, this past weekend did not do, uh, I thought it would do better. I mean, it, it was uh, a show that was under, uh, 600,000 viewers, of course, they went right up against a UFC fight night card, uh, which was, of course, down in Brazil. The Bellator uh, card averaged 597,000 viewers for uh, the three-hour main card, and the, and the fight night 100 card averaged 769,000 for the main card, 532 for the prelims, and 213,000 viewers for, for the post-fight show. I, I honestly thought that, that that fight would draw a little more than it did, but Sam, as uh, you know, I did not watch these fights live. I talked about it on my post-fight show. Uh, I was in Kansas City, so I was enjoying some good barbecue, and uh, I was really you know, good barbecue down there. Yeah, I went to uh, Steve Morocco of MMA Junkie had uh, had recommended me Arthur Bryant's 
So I've, it, it I've was, never been there. I've been to Gates and a couple other places, but I've never been to Arthur Bryant's. Yeah, it's uh, it was about a nine ten minute Uber ride from our hotel, and uh, you, you know it was a good place when uh, you, you see the the line is pretty much at the door already, and uh, you, you you mean and you know when you go into a restaurant and you can tell they're not really measuring the food, you know you're probably at a good spot. Yeah, you're not at that corporate place where yeah. you know they're measuring how much the food goes in. But uh, you know, had had a really good time. I did have to laugh as we were uh, walking walking down the street to to head to a, a sports bar to watch some college football. I, I did see a World Series of Fighting uh, advertisement for the October car. I was like, well, obviously they haven't changed that billboard in a while. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, best, Kansas City has great barbecue. But real quick, the best barbecue I've ever had is was in Memphis. Uh, uh, I tell you, in Memphis, I went. Uh, I went to a bar when uh, Bellator did a pay per view. I it was actually I don't know if you remember this. There was actually a barbecue festival going yep. on at that. Oh time. yeah, I, of course I remember it. My fiance, fiance, and there we went. I think we went two day, two uh, two different days. We went. Yeah, and uh, by my hotel there was a, a a a barbecue joint that a lot of people had recommended me was was great barbecue. Yeah, I had, I had rendezvous. Uh, I don't remember what the name was. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that name being one that you talked about, but I had some people tell me different uh, places to go to. I, I don't know if there's really a bad barbecue place in Memphis to go to. That's Yeah, that's a th- that's why Memphis is so good. I mean, you you, it, you have to literally work to find bad barbecue there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, But, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, Kansas City, uh, Arrowhead Stadium is a very unique stadium from um, you know from the press box because the windows don't open. So, uh, you know, if I don't have my headphones on with, you know, everything that's going on in the broadcast, obviously I hear that I can hear the crowd with that, with all the uh, the microphones we have on the field. Uh, by the way, poor Fox Sports guy, Parabolic guy, getting run over by the Minnesota Vikings. I don't know if you saw that one. Poof. I did not. I oh, did man, not. it was all over, uh, all over social media on, on Sunday. But, you know, it's uh, Arrowhead. It's a loud stadium. You know, to me, it's it's Arrowhead and uh, the Seahawks stadium. Those are the two loudest stadiums uh, in the NFL. But uh, big, big win by my, my Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's got a huge game now coming up on Sunday against Seattle Seahawks. So, uh Seattle's a tough team. Very tough team, Jason. Yeah, very tough team. It's it's not been a good year in fantasy football for me. So <laughs> not for and for me neither. I'm five and six now. But I do want to get back on target here. The ratings. I, I will say this. I think there's a random a randomness to Bellator's ratings, and they're hard to figure out. And I don't think there's a science behind it sometimes. I think it's purely random because I don't know how to explain why the Israel show popped a better rating, a slightly better rating than the Phil Davis, Liam McGeary show. Yeah. It's, a tape show from Israel getting a better rating than a live show from the U.S. Here, here's the thing about the Israel show that is really amazing to me because that was a show that was tape delayed 30-ish hours, somewhere somewhere around then. And like and, me, Jason, you probably saw the finish before the fight. Uh, I saw the fight live. You saw a live. <laughs> I I saw the finish almost right after. Well, it happened. Let's just say if you happen to follow the the right uh, brother um, on uh, on Facebook, uh, yeah, uh. Stre- streaming. Uh, stream, you know, Diego Lima streamed the fight on Facebook Live. Which I will tell you this: I noticed. <laughs> I noticed, wait a minute. It, w- it wasn't like an international feed. It was oh, from no. his phone. Oh, it was straight up Facebook Live where uh, I saw someone put it on Twitter like, hey, go to Diego Lima's Facebook. It was Diego in the back, Facebooking, <laughs> living off the TV in the locker room, which my, my first thought was wow. is, here's my thought. 
did Bellator not put something in those fight contracts and those bout agreements about making sure that no one in your team streams anything? Because I think face, you know, we talked about Periscope for a while about in terms of piracy. And, and I noticed this being at, at a local show recently where I saw numerous people Facebook living the fights. This is, I, I mean, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about local MMA in a little bit, but to me, that has got to be something that whether you're a local promotion or you're at the, the Bellator UFC level and, and you're talking about piracy, I don't know how you monitor that stuff. It's almost impossible unless you have some kind of, unless you get it, everyone, you tell you ban cell phones. But I would say this, I thought Bell, you know, and, and as a reporter, I did not want to ruin the results for anybody. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, I, I, I remember seeing some tweets and I had some people, you know, sending me tweets. And I said, look, yes, I know what the results are, but I'm not going to tweet the results because I don't want to ruin it. You know, 5% of my listeners may want, or my readers or people who follow me, they may want to know the results, but I don't want to ruin it for the other 90, 95% of the people that may don't want to know the results. And I thought Bellator really lucked out a lot because, for the most part, really, the media did not try to spoil any of the results. And they I think if not. you're, and I think if you're Bellator, you guys sit there and say, "Yeah, that's that's something good." No, but I did notice uh, going back and watching the fights from last weekend that their uh, show that uh, I believe it's uh, in Italy with um, Carvello and Manhoff, they're airing live on Spike on a Saturday afternoon. That's that's a change in philosophy for them then. I I do wonder if maybe that they're you know maybe there's maybe and, and who knows maybe it's someone inside Bellator has been having that conversation of, look we're we're a we're a live sports product we can't be tape delaying things. Well, it'll be interesting to see what that rating is because I think that'll probably go a long way towards determining what their future philosophy and their strategy will be. Yeah, especially when you're talking about you know you know as they they look to. Uh, continue their international expansion, and uh, you know it's you know obviously Chandler and Henderson was, was a great fight. Page and, and Gonzalez was a dud uh, of a fight. Um, yeah, you know, and, and it's you know, and I don't blame for you know. For, I, I think where Fernando made him his mistake in that fight, he just wasn't aggressive in the first round. If he's aggressive in the first round, he might have won that fight. Absolutely, without question. Now, now the judge who scored that 30-27, Fernando Gonzalez, I don't know what the hell he was watching. There there were some scorecards this weekend. Uh, even, even in the main event, the 48-46 for Henderson, I don't know what that judge was watching. We're getting to a point now where there's a level of incompetence with certain judges, and there's no mechanism or process in place to weed those guys out. We're getting to a point now where we almost need to have five judges and the high score and the low scores get thrown out. Oh, I don't know if you noticed this, watching that fight or not, but there was at one point where a cameraman for Spike who was on the apron was not on um, his step stool, and he had moved over to get a better shot of the action, and the judge had to stand up to move to see the action. Wow. Now, I know I have heard this in the past when that stuff happens. Usually there is someone from the commission that will make sure that very quickly that it's informed that that camera person you can't get in the judge's way. Yeah. The the guy that was uh, notorious for that was Tom Malloy in Florida. Oh, the great the greatness that is Tom Malloy. Oh, I mean, man. He, he would, I, I would see him put his hands on camera personnel. Yeah. 
Man, you know, he, I mean, he would jump right out of his seat whenever a camera guy got in someone's way. He would just jump right up, on, uh, you know, out of his seat, and he would literally grab the grab whoever it was and, and tell them that they had to go back to their original position. I've heard with other commissions too that that things have happened, whether it's uh, photo people or camera people, um, you know, because I mean the judge and sometimes and anyone who's been to a bell tournament they know this. There, depending on your position, there could be tough angles with that cage, where you can miss things. Absolutely, you know. I mean, but I, I just that I. I the, the Benson Henderson Chandler fight. I mean, clearly the fifth round was for Benson Henderson, and there were some close rounds there. But I, I find it hard to say that Benson Henderson won three of those five rounds. Yeah, he he did not. It's very interesting when you analyze Ben Henderson's first three fights in Bellator and what his impact has been, and whether or not he is worth the money that he is being paid. Because if you look at it, he's been in two title fights. He has lost both title fights, both to Bellator-branded fighters. His the, thir- the second fight, but the third fight that we're evaluating here, against Patri- Patricio Pitbull, a 145-er, had Patricio not gotten injured in the first round, Ben Henderson may have lost that fight yeah. because that first round was not going in, in his favor. Oh, well, here's also one of my big takeaways from that fight. No sponsors, once again, on Benson Henderson shorts. Chandler had a lot, though. So, the, you know, this is – I'm glad you brought that up, Jason, because, you know, when Roger Huerta fought for Bellator, he did not have a lot of sponsors in Bellator after he had a lot of sponsors in the UFC. And a lot of people started pointing fingers at Jeff Clark and the and his man, you know, who was his manager at the time, and said, "Wow, you know, he can't get Roger sponsors." Well, Roger had offers, but it was a decision made by Roger not to accept less than a certain rate that he had in mind. Roger felt that he was a brand, and that in order to be associated with 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 Roger and his brand. You were going to have to – it was going to cost you a certain amount of money to do that, and he was not going to accept less and devalue what his what – he, what he believed his worth to be. Because I think in Roger's mind as a brand, you weren't just getting a spot on his shorts and getting 10 to 15 minutes of exposure on TV – you know, if you were investing in Roger, if you were sponsoring Roger, he was going to support your brand, you know, and you were going to get visibility even outside of the cage just by being associated with Roger. So maybe that's the same type of mentality with Ben Henderson. I'm sure that if Ben wanted to have his shorts filled, he could easily do that. But maybe he's taking a stand here and saying, you can't get all my shorts for $500, $750. We're talking big time money. And yeah, you know, some people might say I'm leaving money on the table by not, you know, accepting your offers. But once I start accepting 500 for for that for that uh, logo, seven fifty for that logo. Then I've set my value. I've reset my value so low that it, what's the point? Whereas if he holds out and he gets that one big sponsor because he hasn't devalued himself, mm-hmm. then all that money that he supposedly left on the table suddenly that pales in comparison to what he can get for that one big sponsor. So I think maybe it's more of a strategic decision not to accept what current sponsors are offering in hopes that. They're not going to devalue themselves, and they will still appear attractive to a bigger, bigger opportunity. And Benson has mentioned that it's interesting you bring up that point because in that Matt Mitrione interview I referenced earlier, he was talking, you know, and we'll talk about the MAFA here shortly. But he was talking about fires unions, and he goes, 
you know, as fighters, we have to come together and we have to, you know, be one. We have to to come together. And he talked about when he fought Kimbo back at UFC, I want to say that was 113, I want to say, so, somewhere in the, the one, early 100s. And, and he said that he had a sponsor that he said he was going to make around seven or $8,000. And then uh, he said the day before the weigh-ins, the sponsor's like, hey, uh, we're not going to do a deal with you because someone else is going to do it for $500. You know, and and I've heard that situation before, and it comes to is will fighters come to? But you know, look, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of times where I hear some of these sponsor deals for fighters, and you see sometimes the size of the the logos, and and I look at that from a marketing aspect, and I'm like, as a company, what what what's the investment in that? If I can't even tell who the company is on those shorts, I I just look at that. That's a wasted money from the from the advertiser. Right, and that's why it's up to the fighter and the manager to offer a package that extends beyond just that placement on the shorts, whether it means appearing in branded advertising for that for an apparel company, you know, if they have a catalog, you know, offering your services for the catalog, trying to sell your presence on social media. That yes, you're going to be getting a, a, a spot on my shorts, you know, what, you know, during my fight. But the real value is I have X amount of followers on Twitter and I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to send out X amount of tweets leading up to my fight Mm -hmm. promoting you or I'm going to do videos and and, and other other, uh, you know, viral media campaigns that is going to feature your brand. That's really the sell there, because if you're like you said, Jason, there's not enough value in, in a shorts placement or a banner placement alone. You've got to create additional value and the managers and fighters that can understand the game in that way and that have adapted to that they can still do okay you can you know there's still some money to be made out there not as much as there used to be and not a lot overall but there's still some opportunities out there but if you're just pushing shorts like it's 2005 2006 you're not going to make anything you've got to create additional value yeah the, the game has definitely uh changed there but you know we, we talked a little about ufc 205 and and conor mcgregor and obviously it was what he said after the fight that that got the the main attention was the fact of seeking a, an ownership stake uh in the ufc and clearly the ufc the the battle with Conor McGregor now is in the boardroom in terms of of negotiating and to, to continue to keep him and and one of the things I'll say that Conor McGregor's potentially his biggest leverage is Amanda Nunez retaining the UFC Women's Bantamweight title next month. Oh, absolutely. If Ronda loses, and even if she wins, she's already stated that this is kind of the beginning of the end for her, that she doesn't have very many fights left. So Conor really is, you know, they're so dependent on him now for, for finances. You know, Front Row Brian sent out an interesting tweet last week, and he basically said that Conor McGregor to the UFC is worth $75 million in pay-per-view revenue every year. And the way that I believe he calculated was he took the baseline average of their pay-per-views in which McGregor does not appear, compared that to the ones he has headlined, and added up the difference. And it came out to $75 million. That is a huge chunk of their overall pay-per-view revenue. So if I'm Conor McGregor, you're crazy not to push right now for, for a bigger stake in what the UFC is doing and try to get paid more. If Conor McGregor, if that number is a real number, that $75 million per year that he represents, if Conor McGregor was a boxer, he'd be making $37.5 million. 
I mean, he would get at least half of that. At least half of that would be going to, into his pocket. If he was Floyd Mayweather, 60 to 70, 60 to 70% would be going into his pocket. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I heard um, after all this went down is the fact that the UFC was uh, starting to reach out to various people uh, that are in the MMA business in terms of, you know, various things and, and seeking what is uh, the drawing power of Conor McGregor. And, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but there was this topic online of who is the biggest UFC star. Is it Conor or Ronda? I couldn't even believe this was a topic that people were debating. It's clear. It's it's Conor McGregor. He is the biggest star, you know. And and I just I I hear these people saying why it's Ronda, and I'm just like, I I don't. Where's the data backing this up? I haven't seen that data. Does it exist? I I mean, Conor, and and this is the thing. And Conor's right. I mean, everyone complains about him, whatnot. But this is a guy that look how many times he has fought over the last three years. He's one of the most active fighters there is in the UFC, maybe outside of Donald Cerrone uh, and Sam Alvey. I mean, this is one, and he brings in he he brings in a different audience. He brings in a he brings in that mainstream sports fan that I mean, some you know Rousey can bring in, but let's be honest about it. Rousey maybe at most has two three more fights left. And she's very hit or miss when it comes to her media appearances and her press conference performances. With Connor, there he's, it's consistent. It, it, he always gives you something to react to and think about. Whereas you know Ronda, you know Joe Rogan sticks a mic in her face when they bring her out at UFC 205 during the, the, the pre-fight you know, festivities leaving, leading up to the, the main show, and she just storms off. Yeah, and of course Dana White has said that that was not supposed to happen, but I, I do wonder if – and because Joe has been critical of her decisions, and, and I think that the fact that she only started training back in August to take on Amanda Nunez, I – Sam, I just I, – I look at her and – I, I almost get the sense does does she not think that there's a problem in her in her training, and, and you you know and I mean Edmund Traverdian has to be the worst cornerman in the history of MMA, and that's not just that's not just fan service that's not just fan ignorance when those statements are made by people like you me and just MMA fans on Twitter there have been fighters you know guys that have you know cross paths with him that are have been exposed to his training techniques and follow his corner instruction you know and they've ripped him as we've a coach we've heard we've heard his corner instructions i mean and i go back to this line where i was watching an interview with Don Cerrone and someone asked him I said why don't you corner your you know your teammates you know more and he goes he goes i'm an awful cornerman he goes, he goes, there's someone much, much better than me that can corner those guys. And when you listen to Edmund Traverdian, you just go, what is he doing as a corner man to help his fighter out? You know, maybe he's a yes man. You know, maybe Ronda yeah. sticks with him because he is a yes man and just does whatever she wants. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, what the st- real story is behind that i mean even her own mother has basically advised her not to continue to work with him i, I so you, I, I think that I just, fight against a man is gonna end really bad for her i just don't think the ronda that we're gonna see 
at the end of December is prime Ronda Rousey. You know, she even said this is, you know, this is one of her last remaining fights. And that really says to me, it's the beginning of the end. She's already planning her exit. She's already, she already has one foot out the door. You know, I, and I said it, I guess on the last show that I did, Jason, that the fact that after Misha Tate beat Holly Holm, the fact that Ronda did not start training for that fight the very next day said a lot to me because that fight was there for her. If she had gone to Dana White and said, Hey, Misha's got the title. I want to fight her. I mean, that's that's an easy path back to the title. That would have been a very easy path back mm-hmm. to the title for her. You know, and, and there's per, there was personal animosity between the two. It was an opportunity not only to beat Misha Tate, but to beat her for the title. It could have been there for her. All she had to do was pick up the phone and head back to the gym, and she didn't do it. And the crazy thing is, is we may be a month or two away from a, a UFC women's bantamweight division without Ronda Rousey or Misha Tate. And how crazy is it after Holly beat Ronda and then Misha beat Holly, there were at least two mega fights on the table for the UFC as far as rematches, whether it be Ronda versus Misha, the rematch, Ronda versus Holly, the rematch, even Holly versus Misha, three big money matchups there. None of them happened. None of them. Yeah. That's that's a that's a that's a promoter's mistake, right there. That is yeah. a promoter's mistake. Granted, yes, I understand that Ronda probably wasn't in in a, a great spot, and she probably didn't want the fight against Misha and, and whatever and whatnot. But as a promoter, you've got to get in there and you've got to push for those matchups. When you have money like that sitting on the table, you've got to push. Because in this sport, you have such a short short lifespan where you can make the most money possible. Yeah, you, you know, got to take advantage of it when you can. I'm sure Amanda Nunez versus Ronda will do a good number, but not as good as Ronda versus Holly 2, Holly versus Misha 2, or Ronda versus Misha 3. Yeah, no, I, I it's it's a Friday night pay-per-view. How well does it do? You know, only time's going to tell on that. But, you know, McGregor warning ownership stake in the UFC, you know, and he mentioned about the celebrities that have bought in. And, when you, you know, the number that came out was, the cost of that was $250,000. But then when you look at the UFC selling for $4 billion and and, and people can come in at $250,000, you realize that they don't really have a stake in the company, essentially. I mean, a very, very small. I mean, they, they don't. But I think, you know, Connor deserves that opportunity to be a equity owner in the UFC, just like some of those celebrities. And you don't give someone equity in a company like the UFC at the value that the UFC is at. But what you can do is you can, you know, raise Connor's pay because it's going to go up no matter what. I mean, he oh, yeah. even if he doesn't get equity, he's going to negotiate it up. And you could say, you know, in lieu of straight cash, we're going to pay you, you know, that 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 cash is going to go, you know, it's going to come out, but it's going to go right back into our account. And that's going to, you know, that's how you're going to pay for your equity. You know, we're not going to give you equity. We're going to give you an opportunity to, to buy it. And I think we're going to see Connor back in the cage. You know, obviously he's got a, a baby due coming up here. And, and how much that affect? I mean, I, Are we really? Is it guaranteed that we're going to see him back soon? If he doesn't, I mean, do we really think that he needs to come back? I mean, he he should have enough money right now that he could retire on it. You would think, but I could, I could see him coming back and saying he wants to headline the Brooklyn card in February. 
he he could say that, but I, I don't think he's going to. I don't think he. I think he knows his worth. I think he knows his value. I think he played himself, you know, during his last mini holdout. I don't. Th- I think he learned from that. I think he realizes how much power he has. He's going to use it and go the distance this time. I mean, look, and I, have a, I have a feeling that he's been better with his money than he's led some people to believe. You know that 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 twenty thousand dollar pimp starter coat, that fur coat that he had that had the tag on it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it that to me, people are making fun of him for that, but to me, that actually shows that he's probably, you know, being smart with his money instead of actually buying that jacket, he probably rented it for the weekend and used it as a prop. Yeah, and, and if that's the case, then give the guy credit; he put on a show with it, and you know, he didn't pay full price for it. No, I mean, look, Connor, and I've always said this, I, I think Connor in post-fight press conferences is, is a, a fascinating guy to listen to because it, it's no longer Connor McGreg of a fight promoter. You just you, you listen to who Connor is. Um, I, I, I would love to see the, the McGregor-Khabib fight, but I think what most likely it'll be is we're going to see Khabib-Tony Ferguson next. Most likely, you know, because, I, I, I would I, love, I would love to see Ferguson versus Connor next, but you know, look, you know, I, I listen to Khabib and you know, in, in his post-fight interview where he saw about you know the, the the amount of people in Russia in comparison to Ireland, and you know, the problem is, and and I mean, look, Khabib is is a very talented fighter. Um, there was a portion in beginning of that fight I thought he was going to get knocked out. He's got to if he's going to fight Connor McGregor. He he needs to get some better boxing defense. Otherwise, Connor might if Connor can keep it on the feet, he's going to pick him apart. But I remember when when Khabib fought here uh, in Tampa, and he didn't have a country behind him here in Tampa. I'll tell you that. Where you, you look wherever Conor McGregor goes, he's got a country in that building. Yeah, you know, there's sure far more people in Russia than there are in Ireland. But Irish people, when I say Irish people, I mean people that like are from mainland Ireland. They are much more fervent about their support of Irish boxers and Irish MMA fighters. There aren't a lot of Russian citizens getting on planes coming over to the U.S. or, or other you know places in North America to watch Russian fighters. You know, I mean, if a Russian is a draw here in the U.S., they're working on the Russian American population. They're not drawing people paying. You know, three to five grand. You know, to take a two to three day mini vacation, come over here and, and watch them fight. I mean, there aren't people from mainland Russia coming over to watch Russian fighters. It's just, that's just that's a fact. And, and when I hear Khabib making the the demands, he's he says, I'm just like, man, you realize you have no leverage, right? Like how, how, many, fights how, many, row, how many fights in a row has Tony Ferguson won? I believe it's nine. How does that not make him the number one contender? Oh look, he he's got. I mean, it, it's it's. I, I think there's a case for either guy, um, but and but I also understand where Connor's coming from, where he says, "Hey, this is a guy who can't show he can stay healthy." I understand where Connor's coming from that, at that aspect. No, yeah, no. If I'm Connor, I want that Tony Ferguson fight ahead of that Khabib fight. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, do you think the UFC gives in and gives him an ownership stake or an equity stake of the company? I think they're strongly considering it. I, I think that under the Vertitas, they probably would have it would have been a non-starter. But I think under new ownership, with so much riding on this next TV contract and the accountability that they have to a lot of people that put up money for that sale, it's all based and predicated upon this next TV deal. 
that was the yeah. selling point to these investors that we're going to get, you know, 300, we're going to triple this, this TV, at least we're, you know, at the minimum, we're going to triple our TV rights package. And yes, I understand Connor does not fight on free TV anymore. He does not fight on Fox, doesn't fight on Fox Sports Net, but even the shows that he headlines, the, the undercard fights, the fights that are televised on Fox Sports 1, they get a bump yeah. from any time Connor's on a show. Anytime he's on UFC tonight, there's a bump in ratings. Anytime that he's featured on UFC programming, there is a bump. The product is hotter. There's more momentum behind it. There's just more eyeballs when Conor McGregor is involved in being heavily promoted on a UFC upcoming UFC show. So everything is riding on this next TV deal. They cannot afford to not have Conor McGregor in tow when they sit down at the bargaining table with it, with NBC, ESPN, Turner Sports, and also Fox. They need to have Conor in the bag. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, in terms of, I don't know, you know, and obviously the TV landscape, it's a changing landscape, and, and when you see what's going on with ESPN and, and other networks, can they get that? But it was very interesting over the past couple of days to see that Ari Emanuel and President-elect Donald Trump were meeting, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you know, Ari is a... He's a power player, and you know the effects it could have on on um, how the UFC does business. Let's really go in depth here and explain to everyone just how powerful Ari Emanuel is. Ari Emanuel's brother is Rahm Emanuel, and if you follow politics, you know that Ron, Rahm Emanuel was President Obama's chief of staff. He was one of his main advisors. He left that position to go run for mayor of Chicago. Rahm Emmanuel is tried and true a Democrat. He is one of the most prominent Democrats and most influential Democrats in the history of the Democratic Party. And his brother, Ari Emanuel, even though Rahm Emanuel is so close to Obama and, and, and Trump, you know, was the guy that really railed against Obama the most in the mainstream media, pushing that, that birther uh, position. And, you know, despite that, that chasm that exists between Ari's, Ari Emanuel's brother and, uh, and Trump, you know, he can still walk in and get a meeting with Donald Trump. That shows you how powerful Ari Emanuel is. And I saw people on Twitter saying, oh, he's there talking about, you know, how Trump can help the UFC. That's not necessarily why Ari Emanuel was there. I'm sure the UFC got brought up, but... Ari Emanuel has his tentacles spread out among so many different media properties and entertainment properties. They were talking about all kinds of stuff, and it probably wasn't necessarily Ari Emanuel talking about what Donald Trump can do for him. It was probably more along the lines of what Ari Emanuel can do for Donald Trump. That shows you how much power he has, what a broker he is. The Ali uh, Act applying to MMA had a very unlikely shot of happening. Before that meeting, I can tell you, and before Trump getting elected, I can tell you it's not going to happen whatsoever. That is dead. And, you know, we've had Rob Macy on this show in the past. And, you know, my opinion of Rob changed a lot from his appearance. I really believe he does have the fighter's best interests in mind. I would say that his strategy, as far as the Ali Act, is completely dead, and he needs to essentially reorganize. He needs to come up with a new strategy now and figure out a new role in which he can be an advocate for fighters because the Ali Act, and the, the which the Fighters Association was 
pretty much resting. I mean, it was predicated on the Aliak passing. The, the success and failure of, of, of Fighters Association happening was built around the Ali Act. And it's it's dead now. It is absolutely dead. Now is it officially dead? No, it still may exist in in in, in the chambers of the Senate or the House at some point. And you, you that that legislation's been written and, and it may go before a vote at some point or it may not because it just no one wants to look, you know, that bad and, and have their bill get destroyed that badly, but it, it's not gonna happen. It's it's a Republican president that has has ties to the ownership of the UFC, it's a, a Republican-elect president who had Dana White act as one of his speakers yeah. during his his convention, during the GOP convention. Dana spoke on behalf of Donald Trump. Um, and, and it's a Republican-led Congress. There, There's no chance in hell that that bill is even going to make it out of the House. It will never see the Senate. And and it, and let's just say, in some bizarre world, that it made it out of the House, it made it out of the Senate, and it ended up on the Trump, the desk of of Donald Trump. It's getting vetoed with 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 authority. And I guess you know I'm not a political expert per se, but I guess it would could it would go back to the Senate. And I guess if it if it got you know that that veto could be override if it got a higher percentage of votes. But it, that's not that that there, there's it, listen, it's not happening. It's no, not no, yeah. Ali Act is dead, uh, and 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 people like Rob Macy and other people that were pushing for the Fighters Association that had all their eggs in that Ali Act basket, they need to they need to move on and they need to figure out different ways in which they can help fighters. I, I will say this, um, you know, and we were going to talk about this, and I, I like something I saw out of the MAFA this week, and it was a tweet about uh, Diveson Ribeiro who people may remember broke his leg uh, at a Titan event earlier this year when he, he was fighting a, a title fight. And the tweet said this, quote, after world title by about for Titan, Diveson Ribeiro was left with a broken leg and 60,000 unpaid medical bills, hashtag MMAFA at Titan Fighting. And, you know, this is one of the first times I think I've really noticed the MAFA really going after a promotion, not name the UFC. And, and that was one of my questions for Rob is, you know, hey, what are you going to do for fighters who um, are, are in regional promotions like Titan FC? So this really caught my eye. But I, I thought with your expertise on, on being on the promoter side, I thought you could offer some, a unique insight into um, the tweet there by the MAFA. Well, I'm glad to see Rob called attention to that situation because when we had him on, you asked him about Andrew Whitney's issues with Titan, and you know Rob wasn't very informed about that situation. So I think maybe he, you know, hopefully he potentially learned from that and is now paying greater attention to fighters on the regional scene, fighters that have issues even outside of the UFC. So that it was it was nice to see him take up that cause. However. You know, that's only one side of the story. I would like to know Titan's side of the story because I've been on the promotional side and I know how fighter insurance works. And fighter insurance is like any other insurance. It's rigid. There are rules and regulations and procedures and paperwork that has to be followed to a T. And there's only so much that the promotion and the promoter can do when it comes to the submission of that paperwork. They're relying on the fighter to get paperwork back in a timely fashion, fill it out correctly, and to follow the protocols. You know, if 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 uh, Hibero was supposed to get care in the United States and decided that he didn't want to get care in the United States and wanted to go back home and had all the procedures done there, 
Well, that could be a loophole. You know, I, I can tell you that I, you know, there was a situation with with Nick Gonzalez with with that when I was with Matrix Fights, the big KO when Anthony Morrison hit that spinning back fist and knocked Nick Gonzalez out cold, you know, and broke Nick's jaw in multiple places. You know, I, I and we understood Nick's position as a promotion. Nick wanted to get home. You know, he didn't if he was going to have surgery and be laid up, he didn't want to be in a strange city without his family around, and, and we understood that. But the way our insurance worked, you know, he had to get. All of his procedures done in Philly. He, you know, it was it was covered through the state of Pennsylvania. That's how we got our, our fighter insurance. It was done through the commission. It was a PA policy. He could not go back to Texas and, and and have you know procedures done there. And we pleaded with him. And I think ultimately he he did not listen to us and he wanted to go home and and he went home. And I don't know if our insurance covered it, but you know I was pretty sure that we conveyed and communicated to him that hey, you need surgery on your jaw. You we need you to stay in Philly for a couple more days so we can get the surgery scheduled and you can have it done and and once it's done you can go back to to texas but he did not want to stay in philly and and he went back with a broken jaw that uh needed to be surgically repaired and and, you know and i i faced that kind of situation a lot in bellator where you know fighters were sent paperwork and they just wanted a magic wand solution they didn't want to have to go and fill out paperwork they wanted us to just make pick up a phone and, and call for them and I think a lot of the perception was in years past that a fighter was essentially a guy like Rich Franklin, a college-educated guy, a smart guy, an organized guy, a guy that could hold down a nine-to-five job, show up for work on time, and do what he was supposed to do. But a lot of fighters aren't like that. They, they're, they're people that cannot exist in a nine-to-five real-world environment, and when you hand them paperwork and tell them that they have to fill it out a certain way and send it back a certain way, they, they, they just can't do it. And that's why a lot of fighters don't get, you know, the coverage that that is there for them. Um, so that's that that's part of the issue. And sometimes fighters, uh, you know, they they go to the public and they tell a story that isn't necessarily a hundred percent accurate. You know, I remember with Zoila Frosto, you know. Bellator, when I was there, we took a lot of heat because she came out and said that you know we weren't covering. You know certain injuries that she she sustained, and you know when Bjorn heard that in the media and read that, he freaked out on a lot of people and said, "How could this happen? You know, how could we do this to one of our fighters? And how you know how could we you know uh, let this happen?" And you know he said, you know, came right out and said, "Oh yeah, we're we're going to take care of it. We're going to cover it." Once he started talking to the right people, he found out that the reason why it wasn't covered was because Zoila didn't suffer the fight in our cage, suffer the injury in our cage. You know, and our insurance didn't cover. We weren't the UFC. We, we didn't have you know uh, coverage for, uh, you know, outside of our fights. You know, we didn't have the kind of we didn't have coverage that paid for fighters if they were injured training for one of our fights. So you know, there was nothing our policy within our policy to 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 address her knee injury. That knee injury, from what we determined, didn't happen in our cage. You know, and that's the other issue. You know, we would tell fighters all the time there was a claims form. You have to show up with the hospital at the hospital if there's a post-fight injury, whether it's right after the fight or you go home. There's a form that all fighters are given, and they have to have that form when they go and get treated. And if they don't have that form, that creates a paperwork issue that could prevent them from having their bill covered, or at the very least, if they don't have that 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 uh, claims form. They're go at the time that they get care. They're at the very least going to be sent a bill, 
whether or not that bill gets is you know you can retroactively go back and get that bill covered sometimes we were able to do that but there regardless of, of whether it's able to get covered you the fighter's still going to see a bill and that bill's if they don't have that claims form the bill's going to get directed to the fighter and not to the promoter and the insurance company so i you know we we heard one side of it but i would like to hear titan's side yeah it would be interesting i mean titan's got an event coming up uh next friday night uh, down in uh, in South Florida, we'll see uh, you know if they if they do respond and if any media is going to an event, I think they should that they should definitely be asking that question whether uh, Jeff Aronson or Lex McMahon is made available uh, to the media in terms of that. Uh, you know, also got to mention about Rashad Evans uh, now has been denied a license by two different athletic. Uh, commissions. First up, it was the New York State Athletic Commission, which, by the way, did you see that New York has given Kevin Gaslam a six-month suspension for not stepping on the scale? I, I, I like that. I know some people have been critical about New York doing that, but I, I think that's more than fair. You, you you know, it's one thing to miss weight. It's it's inexcusable to not even show up for weigh-ins if you're not being hospitalized. Here, here's the other part of that. Why is Kevin Gaslam's team want him to try to make 170 again? Well, because it's probably because Calvin Gastelum's probably fully capable of doing it. He's just friggin' lazy. I, I mean, I, I don't know how the, how you're the UFC. You let him try to make 170 again. They're not going to. Dana's came, Dana came out and said it, he'll never fight 170 again. It's a shame because he actually had real potential at that weight. I don't know what his future is at 185. The guy is just lazy. He's not willing to do what he needs to do to get down to 170. Yeah, and uh, you know, and then of course, you know, Tim Kennedy now looking for an opponent, and you really got to, with, with two commissions now saying no, we're not going to license Rashad Evans. You, it's got to be getting to the point that you wonder, can Rashad Evans get licensed by any commission at this point? Well, he's been flagged now. Uh, you know, any commission now that you know is presented with the prospect of Rashad Evans fighting under their jurisdiction they're gonna look at his medical records with a fine-tooth comb and they're gonna err on the side of caution now I, I just at his age I don't know if he's ever gonna fight again I don't know if he's ever gonna be licensed under the UFC banner because there are some promotions out there that would try to go commission shopping and I'm sure there are some commissions that would license Rashad Evans but the UFC has never operated like that. If, if he's been, you know, I was surprised they even tried to push that fight to Ontario right after he, he was stopped from fighting in New York. I was surprised they even went that far. But now that he's been flagged twice, I, I think this could be it for him. Yeah, it could be. Um, it. Unless, un, unless they release him and he goes to another promotion. Now, look, we may never see Rashad Evans back in the octagon. Who knows? Time's going to tell on that. But we're definitely going to see CM Punk fight somewhere. And it could be the UFC, according to CM Punk Look, on Ari Hawani's show this past Monday. I think he will fight in the UFC again because I don't think the UFC wants CM Punk going to Bellator. Even though yeah. I think Bellator could probably do a hell of a lot better job of probably building up CM Punk. They absolutely would have. He, he would have been perfect for Viacom, perfect for Bellator. I think that would have been a better fit. And I think the only reason why he's going to get that second fight in the UFC, because after the first one, Dana White seemed like he had little interest in doing it again. But I think CM Punk pretty much broke it down for Dana, saying that I, I can understand if you cut me and you don't want me to fight again for you. But I, if that's the case, I am going to fight somewhere else. And he all, all but 
should have said Bellator. I mean, that's pretty much what he, you know, without saying it, he said he basically told Dana, "I'll fight in Bellator." You know, that not, and we're not even paraphrasing. He didn't say Bellator, but that's basically in code what he told Dana. Well, let's speculate a little bit. Let's say you know his next fight's in the UFC. Who's it against? We mentioned Mike Jackson. Uh, you know, do we do we just go uh, kind of a, a a freak show? Do we go with David Cash who just got brutally knocked out in Valor? You know, that's I was going to bring that up. That that was going to be what my suggestion was because CM Punk's talking about you know Dana has an idea for him. Well, what's the idea? You, you you know in in the UFC you don't have ideas, you have opponents. You know, so for him to say idea, that's kind of an interesting way to phrase it. I I think it's going to be something gimmicky. I think it's going to be something different, and I, you know, quite frankly, Jason, I hope it is because I think the UFC's biggest mistake—they had a golden goose in CM Punk. They got a little bit of bump out of it on pay-per-view from one fight, but they could have rode this thing for a little while longer had they done it right. And the problem was they—they—they they, they went down the middle. They didn't fully commit. If you're going to sign CM Punk, if you're going to go that route, then go the distance. Don't do a half measure. Don't half-ass it. Go for the full freak show. It, it is a freak show. Make it a freak show and, and get a guy in there that you know CM Punk can compete with. But they they half asked it. They they stopped short. They said, "All right, we're going to sign CM Punk, but we don't want to completely embarrass ourselves. So we're going to put him in there with a respectable guy like Mickey Gall." But that that was just stupid. They lost a lot of money doing that and getting CM Punk beat so early in his MMA journey. They should have went full circus sideshow. If you're going to get wet. Get wet, you know. Don't get a little bit wet. Go go in the deep end, and I think they should do that. That strategy, use that philosophy this second time around, and I think going with Kid Cash, that would be, you know, I think that would, that, you know, just do it. Just just go do the full Monty and, and go for it. And I would take it one step further. I would take it even further. And and I'm gonna, you know, get a lot of people questioning, you know my work at Bellator by suggesting this, but I would even manufacture, if I was in the UFC's position, I would manufacture a feud between them, whether it's Kid Cash attacking CM Punk on Twitter or vice versa, or trying to stage something at a small wrestling independent show where CM Punk's going to, you know, visit a friend and he sees Kid Cash backstage and, you know, they get into some kind of skirmish and, oh, by the way, there's a camera phone there recording the whole thing. I would go that route. No, I never orchestrated anything like that in Bellator. But if I was in the UFC's position with CM Punk, you're damn sure right. I would definitely try to orchestrate something and go the pro wrestling route. If you're going to have a pro wrestler, you know, and you're going to pay him that kind of money, let him be a pro wrestler. Just go the full distance or don't do it at all. Magically, someone has a high-definition camera just rolling on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean it, it, we were talking about this as we were playing this show. It, it, Kid Cash was the first thing that came to my mind. And that, uh, it's, uh, that was going to be my suggestion. I, you know, it was that or Phil Baroni. Yeah. yeah that, that's or, been... or, or find another pro wrestler for him to fight. That was my other thought. You know, who's a pro wrestler that wants to fight MMA and maybe he can, you know, settle up a feud uh, against CM Punk. But, uh, and this I, second time, sorry to cut you off, but this second time around, CM Punk, the first time around, he was a, he played the role of a respected, respectable newcomer, a, a new a new guy that was treating the sport as a sport and showing its proper respect. If he wants to do a number for this second fight after that first performance, he's got to do what he does best and be a pro wrestler and sell this second fight 
like a pro wrestler, and they need to get a guy like Kid Cash or someone like Phil Baroni, someone that they could create the illusion or the legitimacy of real heat so that he's going back and forth with someone. Uh, last week, a little bit of controversy at the uh, Invicta card uh, with in terms of the main event of Tanya Evinger uh, losing her title and has to go down with the referee here in Mike England. For people who did not see this, she's defending an arm bar and she has her foot on the face of her opponent. Uh, talk a little bit about that in terms of the unified MMA rules and, and why um, you know some people may have a misunderstanding of what happened there. Well, in the unified rules, what Tanya was trying to do is, from what I, my understanding is, was perfectly legal. And under the unified rules of MMA, Mike England trying to, to, to prevent her from using that defense out of that armbar was, was wrong. On the surface, it would appear wrong. And, and maybe it really is wrong because I don't have the Missouri state regs in front of me, but to – Cite the unified rules of MMA, you know, applying to that situation, you know, and, and, and Mike England being wrong because he didn't enforce the unified rules of MMA, you, you might not be completely correct. You have to know the full story. And the full story is that the unified rules of MMA, they are a guideline. They are not gospel. They are not adopted by every state word for word. When a state writes their regulations, traditionally the unified rules of MMA are used as the framework. They are used in the as the primary guideline. You know, uh, and a lot of the, these newer commissions, they've consulted with the UFC and Mark Radner, and the UFC has had a lot of influence on the, the, the regulations. But the unified rules of MMA, it's not, it hasn't never been universally adopted by every state and accepted, you know, as the same regulation, you know, in each and every state. Each state uses the unified rules of MMA as a guideline, but they all have variances. Whether or not their variances are, are, are dramatic or not, you know, you'd have to go and review each state's rules and regulations. But for all we know, even though that was okay under the rules of MMA, there could be the way the regulations are written in the state of Missouri – that actually may have been illegal, and Mike England might have been doing his job. People, when you see that kind of situation happen, before you criticize and you say that someone didn't follow the rules, the rules and regulations of, unifi- of the unified rules, you, what you really need to do is go on that state's particular website, and if they do have their regulations up there, you need to review them because their regulations could be different than the unified rules. Yeah, it's uh, and obviously that's a, a situation where the commission and the promoter probably ultimately had that conversation, correct? After the well, fact? after the fact, yes. You know, I mean, the, the referees they they talk to the promoter, they talk to the fighters, they talk to the camps, and they go over the rules. And you know, that, and that's really where I started learning that the unified rules of MMA were only a, were only a guideline because when you're back there for the rules meeting, there, there's different variances and different subtle nuances that are different from state to state that are highlighted typically by the referees. They want any gray area, anything that's different with the, you know, in that specific state in, in comparison to other states, they're very careful about highlighting that and trying to take, address a problem before it even happens. And that's usually what the primary topics of the pre-fight rules meetings are, talking about their variances. For instance, the biggest one is the strike to the back of the head. 
each state, you know, different states have different definitions of what an illegal strike is to the back of the head. Some I've heard certain referees in certain states say it's the Mohawk rule. In other states, I've heard referees say it's the headphone rule. It it different it differs, and it's because each state has variances of what they define as an illegal strike to the back of the head. So that's an example of that, and you know that could be the same situation that happened there with Tanya Evinger, or you know it could be written into the rules uh, for Missouri that what Tanya did was perfectly legal, and Mike England may not just have known the rule book properly. But if that's if that's the case, then he really screwed up because it's his job. To know the rules, no one should be a bigger authority when it comes to the rule book of the state that they're presiding in as, as a referee than, than the referee themselves. Also, got Sam, we got to tell you about a, a local show that I was at because I, I saw two major mistakes that, that were made. The first mistake is when a guy gets knocked out and he is sleeping, essentially. Let's not put a camera over him for about 30 seconds, and it's on every screen in the building. I, I, I saw that. I'm sitting there going, I'm like, what are they doing? I, I, I was like, get that camera off him. That's the kind of stuff you see at regional shows. Sometimes it's very amateur hour. Another thing that you see that I never understood, they have, they'll have the stretcher right near the cage or right outside the, the corral area around the guardrail. You know, any show that I ever did, I wanted that stretcher as far away from public view as possible. Uh, at this show, it was right by where the fires walked out. Yeah, it just looks bad. It looks... Yeah. I'll, it, tell, you, you know, I'll tell you the other thing I saw, Sam, was... And I think... And you, you have seen this. I have seen this. I think one of the biggest mistakes I see at regional shows is where the biggest ticket sellers are within like the first couple of fights of the night. And by the time you get to the main event, three quarters of the building's gone. And that, it's ha- interesting. And, and that happened at a show I was at where li- I, I actually took my business partner, Jerry P took, it was his first MMA shows he, he's ever been to. He, he definitely had a, you know, a unique experience seeing, <laughs> uh, seeing his first local MMA show. But one of the things, and, and I pointed out to him, I was like, you look at, and we stayed for the entire fight card. I mean, three quarters of the building was gone by the time the main event started. And I'm just like, that's, that is a major error done here by the local promoter. And people wanted to always know why Bellator had untele- non televised fights after the televised show. And that's the reason why. Because in a lot of cases for Bellator, at least when I was there during my tenure, the local fighters in a lot of cases were the bigger attraction than our TV fighters. And we wanted to put on a, the best looking TV product that we could. So we needed those stands full. So if we had got, you know, guys that were selling 200, 300 tickets for us, we weren't going to put them on before our televised show because we were going to lose potentially 15 to 20% of our audience, you know, after one fight, just getting up and walking out and you're going to see a big empty, you know, side of the, the, the venue on TV. So, you know, anytime we had big ticket sellers like that, we definitely tried to hold them after the fact. A lot of people didn't like it. Our own production team didn't like it. You know, there was a lot of influential people on our production team that hated it because they felt it was, you know, you know, it was a morale issue for for the staff, and it killed the energy of the show because you know the, the show should end with the televised main event, and to have to keep everyone there after a great televised main event and and televised fights that maybe aren't as anticipated. 
you know, because even though the camera, even though the, the uh, broadcast ended, we still wanted coverage on those fights because some of those guys could be fighting in Bellator in, in, in future years. So we needed the footage and, you know, the camera guys would stay out, production guys would stay in the truck and we'd keep the announcers out. And yeah, it was definitely a, an energy drain. But, you know, we tried to stop doing it. And, you know, once we stopped doing it for a couple shows, suddenly some of the people that were complaining about it said, okay, now we get it. Now, you know, we, we don't, we don't want to produce a product with, with, uh, large chunks of the crowd missing. So yeah, let's, uh, let's go back and do it your way. I, I can tell you that, you know, Hey, I had limited interaction with Scott Coker during my brief time, uh, while we were both simultaneously employed by Bellator. One of the things that he said was, yeah, we're going to do away with, uh, you know, the, the after limbs, the post limbs, you know, and I, I don't think he necessarily understood it until he actually started, you know, promoting Bellator shows. Suddenly, after a couple times of not doing it, suddenly the after limbs and the post limbs were back because in certain markets, your local guys are going to be the, the biggest ticket sellers and you need to keep that room full. You, you know, you want to promote a show the right way. You want the, the largest, you know, the, the crowd should be at its apex for your main event. Yeah, I want to say they had like six or seven fights after this past weekend's uh, main card. They had, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's seven fights after the main card. Sometimes you have to do that. You know, it's not fun. It's, it's, uh, well, when you're on the West Coast, it's, it's a time issue. Yeah, it's a time <laughs> issue. And I, it was recently I was having a conversation with a manager, and this kind of got brought up. And, you know, kind of, it's that, I think it's that debate that, a manager and a fighter have to have if you're going to fight uh, for Bellator or, or, you know, World Series of Fighting does that as well, of, of deciding whether you want to take that fight on a Bellator prelims and how important it is whether your fight is streamed or not, how important is that to the fighter? And it, depends it, on how many, it depends on how many local uh, sponsors they have because they're not getting national sponsors yeah. by just doing, you know, an Internet stream appearance. It's really for the local sponsors. And EJ kind of talked about that when, when he did the show. Interesting you bring up EJ Brooks. He, he talked about uh, he, he kind of felt that Michael Chandler was a little protected in Bellator. Well, first off, EJ is my guy. EJ is a really good guy and one of my favorite guys that I had a chance to work with in M- MMA. And I knew as my Bellator tenure was coming to an end, even before it ended, I knew it was coming to an end. One way or the other, I knew that my time there was going to be limited. And I, I kind of took stock, and I knew that a lot of people that were so-called friends or guys, people that were trying to you know, you know, know, contact me all the time, I, I knew a lot of them were going to go away the minute I was no longer a Bellator matchmaker. No long, the minute I couldn't do anything for them, the minute I didn't have a position of power in MMA uh, or a position of authority, I, I knew a lot of them would disappear, um, and I was okay with that. I knew that was an inevitability. I knew that was going to happen. A lot of guys that you know, you know, tried to pretend to be my friends. I knew, I knew what they were about. I knew they weren't going to be around. You know, but EJ to this day, you know, we don't talk every day. We don't talk a lot, but EJ will still text me. He'll still call me every now and then. You know, that's a guy. He's just a real guy. Even though I can't do anything for him in MMA, he still, you know, reaches out. Hey, how's everything going? You know, how's the family? That's the kind of dude EJ is. He's a real guy. I always liked him from the moment I first met him. You know, he's a good guy. So he's my guy. I've qualified that, but I will say this. He was wrong about Bjorn and Bellator protecting Mike Chandler because the only time we really protected Mike Chandler 
was during his initial fights with the promotion. We knew we had a star on our hands the moment we signed him. I mean, I worked on that contract for about, I would say, seven to nine months. It started with Tyron Woodley, my negotiations. It ended with David Martin. I negotiated that initial contract for Mike Chandler with two different managers. That's how long the process uh, went for. So when we brought Mike in, we wanted to develop him. He was still only had a couple fights under his belt, so we wanted to bring him along strongly, uh, slowly and put him in the best uh, position possible to be successful. Once he went through those initial fights, I think it was about three or four, and he went into the tournament, that was it. Because once Mike went into the tournament, you couldn't protect him. I mean, the tournaments were, in my opinion, especially in his weight class, were stacked. And, you know, Mike won the title early in his career. So once you go into the tournament situation, there's really not much you can do as a matchmaker or promoter to protect a guy. And then once that guy becomes a world champion, there's absolutely nothing you can do at that point to protect him. Every fight's going to be a tough fight. So, you know, that that I, I definitely disagreed with EJ there. I mean, if that's his perception, that's his perception. I can tell you that was not the reality. You know, and when, we, when I signed EJ, you know, I definitely had – the the idea of, of hopefully seeing that fight happen between EJ and Mike, you know, I, I you know Tyron explained the his you know Tyron worked with me on Chandler initially and was the guy that also brought me EJ and you know you know Chandler EJ and Tyron all having wrestled from Missouri, Tyron knew that history between Mike and EJ and was the guy that kind of called it to my attention. I had no idea that there was, you know, issues with, with, with EJ and Mike. Um, but, you know, Tyron brought it up, and I said, wow, that, that could be a great storyline. That, that could be a really, you know, big storyline because I thought EJ was going to be big time for us. I mean, I was so impressed by the footage that I had seen of him and just his pedigree and his athletic ability and his wrestling ability. I, I thought EJ was going to be a future world champion for us. So I thought down the line, two to three years into his Bellator career, that that could be a massive fight for, for Bellator, considering there was real personal history that existed. The fight never happened because EJ never made it into the tournament system. And we were so rigid and uh, you know, tied into our tournament system that we couldn't just make a super fight between EJ and Mike Chandler. We couldn't just make a fight just to make a fight. The only way that fight was going to happen, as long as Mike Chandler was the Bellator lightweight champion, was if EJ won a tournament. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was hoping that EJ was going to get to that tournament level and go the distance, win a tournament, and that we would see that EJ-Mike Chandler fight and that the history that existed between them, that we could tell that story through our tremendous production team and our future our future producer, producers and really blow that up. It just didn't happen. You know, uh, EJ was winning fights, but there was the issues issues with his, with his making weight and then he got knocked out by Daryl Horker, and I, I didn't want to cut EJ because I, I really liked EJ and I believed in his, in his potential. But there were people there that were just really upset with the weight weight issues, and you know, I, my hand was forced, and we had to let EJ go. But that that was the plan was to eventually see EJ fight Mike Chandler and just build up a big fight. But with the way our system was, it, it, you know, EJ had to win a tournament. There was no protecting anyone once you got to the tournament stage. And if you have not heard the episode with E.J. Brooks, you definitely want to check that out on iTunes and Stitcher. E.J. hit out a park, and uh, i got to give credit to, to Sam here because Sam is the one who told me, he says, he goes, you should get E.J. on the show, and, and E.J. was great here on the podcast. So, Sam, i got to thank you for the little, little uh, tip on that one. And, and the thing that I liked about E.J., 
the way that EJ broke down fights, that's how fighters really break down fights. You know, the way the fighter, way fighters talk about fighter, other fighters, and matchups in a gym is very entertaining, very insightful. I, I prefer what I, you know, their approach, uh, you know, the way they talk about a fight in, in the gym than the way they talk about fights on TV. Guys like Brian Stan, Rashad Evans, Daniel Cormier, I really enjoy their analysis. They're, they're, they're great at what they do, and they're very professional. But they fall into that idea of what a play-by-play former player announcer should be, and they become very vanilla. The way – I guarantee you, the way Daniel Cormier and the way Rashad Evans talk about fighters and fights on camera – is completely different than the way they talk about it off camera. It's way more entertaining when you hear fighters keep it real and talk about other fighters and fights when they're in the gym or in the locker room, in the sauna. The, the stuff that you hear is unbelievable, and EJ gave us a little bit of taste like that, uh, and that's what I'm used to hearing from certain guys, You know, being, you know, being in, uh, in vans with them, going to the airport, being in the sauna with them when they're cutting weight, or being at a gym scouting a fighters and just, just picking their brains about certain things or hearing other fighters bring up certain guys and certain fights that were upcoming you know, that weekend and just hearing a guy just let loose and just saying, you know what, that guy sucks. He can't wrestle. I sparred with him you know, a year ago, and I destroyed him. He's going to lose in two minutes. And then you hear a prediction like that, and then you actually see the fight break down that way, and you're like, wow, that, that guy really – he really knew how that fight was going to go to to a T, and that's how fighters talk. They're very outspoken off camera. Uh, I understand why guys like Rashad and Cormier and Stan are very professional, very buttoned up when they do their analysis on on TV because they really have to be. They can't just get up there and say, "Yeah, this guy's an a hole. Uh, he sucks," and you know, uh, you know, he he has no cardio, and you know, his you know he his girlfriend left him, so he's going to lose. You know, you're you're never going to hear that on TV, but. If someone needed like to do a very entertaining podcast or like a fight pass idea, it's to get fighters in the gym breaking down upcoming fights. I, I've always, Fighter, fighters talking, keeping it real because you don't see that on TV. And I've said, and any reporter knows this: the best conversation you have with fighters is when there's not a live microphone around. Those those are the best conversations you have yep. because you you really find out uh, a lot of things that that go on there. Also, is uh, also had a recent episode where. Uh, I sat down with Caleb Williams, who is a fighter out of American Top Team, a regional scene, where we talked about just uh, the lifestyle of a, a regional fighter. So I hope people uh, enjoyed that. So, But we do want to wrap up uh, this edition of the podcast by talking about some uh, or answering some questions that were submitted via social media. First up, from Joe Daddy 85 he says, Who should get paid what when someone misses weight? What are the factors that help determine payout? Now, Sam, obviously, uh, the UFC has had uh, several weigh-in issues. Uh, prior to the Brazil card, uh, they had not had a weigh-in that went perfect since September, back when they did that Adago show, whether uh, a fight was scratched, uh, a fire missed weight, whatnot. Um, you know, Ian McCall was scratched from the Belfast card. And Neil Siri had, had some complaints about not getting the Reebok pay, but sounds like he's now getting that Reebok pay, various other issues. And, and when it comes to UFC, they, they typically always pay out the show purse as long as that fighter makes weight. The UFC does that. Other promotions don't always do that. Promotions that I've worked for in the past, they didn't always do that. It, it drove me crazy. 
I hated to have to be the guy to go back and say, yeah, uh, if you don't fight this guy who is four to five pounds over, you're not going to get your show purse. Because that was the first question. You know, if, if I don't fight, if I don't do a catch weight, am I still going to get paid, Sam? And in my mind, I was like, of course you are. But I, I always had to bite my tongue because I'm not the guy writing the check. The money is in my bank account. So I'd always have to go to the big boss man and say, hey, what are we going to do here? And sometimes we're like, yeah, yeah, we're, we'll take care of him. And sometimes I'm like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean no? I mean, the guy did his job. Why? So you don't always get that. You know, the UFC does it, and that's great. I think all promotions should do it. In fact, I think it should be regulated. It should be put in all regulations that if fighter A makes weight, gets on the scale, hits his weight, and fighter B doesn't, if fighter A decides not to fight fighter B at a different contract weight, promoter still has to pay fighter A his show purse. That shouldn't be up to the promoter to decide. It should be the law. It should be the rule. It should be the regulation. With regards to how much a fighter should get paid, look, the guideline is 20%, but I would always tell fighters, this is not a unilateral decision. I can't exercise this and say, okay, this is the new weight, and you have to do the new weight, and you're only going to make 20%. It's a guideline. Uh, it's not a binding automatic uh, you know, contract clause that I can exercise or the promoter can exercise. There was a contract weight. There was an agreement. There was a valid contract. When Fighter B did not make weight, did not make his contracted weight, this fight, this fight agreement, in my mind, became void, null and void, and a new agreement has to be worked out. And you know, if you want to use that 20% and go with that, that's fine. But if you also want to say 30%, then that, that, that's fine too. And that's what I always would explain to fighters. If, if, you know, you're not sure whether or not you want to take this fight and, you know, you're telling me that 20% is not enough for you to do it, then, and you, but you're willing to do it for more, then ask for more. You know, I, I really think that that 20% guideline should be completely stripped out, that language in all bout agreements, promotional contracts, and state regulation, regulations should be taken out. There should be no cap on what a fighter can ask for when their opponent misses weight. To me, the original bout agreement is null and void, and a new agreement has to be negotiated, and there should be no ca- no cap as to what the fighter who did his job uh, properly should be able to ask for. Yeah, you know, one of the situations I think of is where uh, Ricardo Lamas took the fight with Charles Oliveira after he missed weight and uh, only got 30%, you know, which I was like, man, why are you not asking for, for more as purse? But then also I look at it from the fighter safety aspect, is it – is it in the fighter's best interest, the fighter who missed weight, where you say, by the way, on, on day of the fight, a couple hours before the fight, you have to, to make X amount of weight. And in Charles Alvaro's case, he was actually cutting weight on fight day to make sure he was in weight. And I kind of, there's part of me that goes, is that what's best for fighters, the fighter's health? It's not what's best for the fighter's health, but the fighter that did make weight, that's a reasonable concern that they have to raise is, you know, hey, I spent all this time cutting weight. I got down to the contracted weight. You know, I'm going to rehydrate properly, but I'm only going to be able to get so big. This guy did not have to go all the way down, did not necessarily have to cut as hard as I did. So he could potentially be, you know, 10, 15, who knows, 20 pounds heavier than me on fight day. You know, he missed weight the first time. We need to put some kind of process in place that prevents him from being X amount of pounds heavier than me. So, I, you know, it definitely is not in the fighter's best interest to have to cut the day of the fight, but it's a valid concern raised by the, the other fighter. Another thing I want to bring up, Jason, one thing that also needs to be abolished is when a fighter misses weight, uh, 
half, you know, in certain states, half that fine goes to the commission. That yeah. to me is one of the most ridiculous, shady things that I've experienced in this sport is if a fighter misses weight and that, that money is due to his opponent, why does the commission financially benefit from that? I, I remember having a conversation with a manager about that about six months ago. Why does the commission get that money? Why isn't that money going in full to the fighter that made weight? Uh, I, yeah. I don't, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll call it right out now. Ohio is one of those states, and, and it's it's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. I mean, we're talking about in some cases as little as fifty to a hundred bucks to, to to two hundred bucks, on especially on the regional shows. When you talk about you know ten percent of a very small purse to begin with, so that that money it doesn't really get, isn't going to make a dent in the commission's bottom line, but that that fifty hundred that fifty to a hundred to even two hundred bucks, that could be a big deal to a fighter on the regional level. Mm-hmm. Oh no, question. Yeah. So why should the commission benefit from that? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't get that either. Or as as some people say, uh, they like to use your term, Sam. Was a fighter punting and just uh, quit trying to cut weight? So, I, but uh, I'm confused there. What what what's the what's the statement? Well, the, the thing is, is how many of these fighters just basically you have one fighter who who's working their their tail off to make weight, but then the guy that is not going to make just quits. Well, I mean, so they punt, and and if there's a penalty, you know, if the fight goes on, and there's a you know, there's a penalty that uh, See, the it, fighter that did make, we should should get all of it. And if if the commission wants to take some kind of disciplinary action against the fighter that didn't make weight, I always liked what Mike Mazzulli did in the Mohegan. That you know, that, that in a lot of cases, if a fighter missed weight, there is going to have to be some kind of medical testing that they were going to have to undergo to prove that they were you know, that they were able to make the weight that they they assigned to. Look, if I was managing a guy, Sam, and in terms of that negotiating what the fine is going to be, I'm starting at fifty percent. Yeah, and I'll absolutely. work my way down. But fifty percent is going to be my opening offer. Well, I mean, honestly, if if you're talking about five pounds or more, it's it's seventy percent. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and, and we've seen a, a lot of those situations come recently. And, you know, there, there's been, a, I don't know if you've seen or not, but there's been a lot of speculation online, in particular with UFC, is is what is the cause uh, of all these? You know, you know, typically at a UFC event, everyone makes weight. You know, it happens, but we've seen this. You know, is it how much does early weigh-ins play into this, where guys, you know, aren't sleeping the night before and, and how much that messes up their body? Um, does the USADA and diuretics play a, a cause in this as well? There, there's a lot of questions, and I'm sure it's something uh, that Mark Ratner and his team is looking at. Um, you know, also we got a question here from uh, at MMA underscore guy who wanted to wanted to ask you about Ryan Bader. If you were with at Bellator right now, how much would you give him? And can we guys talk about Baby Slice losing his first fight? Did Bellator rush him? You know, in terms of Ryan Bader. He, I talked about this on my post-fight show, Sam. He's in such a good position because if Daniel Cormier wins in a couple weeks against Rumble Johnson, who's next for for Daniel Cormier at at light heavyweight? Ryan Bader. I know. I mean, it's kind of crazy unless he wants to sit and wait for John Jones to come off suspension in July of next year. I think the ideal situation, if you're the UFC, is you hope Rumble wins. Then you could do a, a trilogy matchup between him and Cormier, so that buys you some time. But 
right now, Ryan Bader's in a great, great scenario. It's just a matter of, and he's already come out and said he wants to come back to the UFC, but but if you're Ryan Bader and his manager, you have to see what the market is for Ryan Bader. You absolutely do. And as good of a position that he is in, if the UFC does not feel that you are a needle mover and Bellator's willing to throw a lot of money at you, no matter how good your record is, no matter how high you are in the rankings, they're not going to match dollars. They're not going to give out contracts that they believe are not fiscally responsible. And you look at Ben Henderson, you look at Phil Davis, you look at Rory McDonald, all examples of that. All great fighters, all at the top of the rankings at the time they left the UFC and signed with Bellator. UFC was in position to match all three of them. They chose not to. They let them all go to Bellator. And I could potentially see that happening with Ryan Bader. As much as Ryan Bader wants to work things out with the UFC, you know, that was a great thing for him to say as far as being a company guy after his fight. The reality is, though, if the UFC doesn't show him respect, and, you know, the word respect really with fighters, it's a euphemism for money. And anytime you see hear a fighter saying, I'm not, you know, getting the respect I deserve, what they're really saying is I'm not getting the money I deserve. You know, money is respect when it comes to the fight game yeah. and fighters. So if Ryan Bader doesn't get the amount that he feels is fair to him, he's going to listen to anything Bellator is willing to say. As far as how much I would pay Ryan Bader, you know, let's look at two contracts. You look at Matt Mitrione, his initial fight with Bellator reportedly was 125 flat. Ben Henderson, his first fight with Bellator reportedly was either 250000 or 275 flat. In my mind, Ryan Bader's real value is probably somewhere in between. However, if I was Ryan Bader, if me, if I was Ryan Bader, in my mind, I would think that I'm worth every bit as much as Ben Henderson. As a promoter, though, I don't see Ryan Bader being worth 250 to 275,000 flat per fight. So, you know, I, Ryan Bader's a very good fighter. He's not a needle mover. He is no, just he's not. not he's he's not. not. So, if I was going to sign him, I would not offer him more than 150,000 flat. And even that number is probably overpaying him, but that's acknowledging that in order to get him to leave the UFC and come fight for my organization that's not the UFC, I have to pay a premium to get him, but there's a cap on the premium that I would be willing to pay. In terms of Baby Slice, I don't think Bellator rushed him at all. Um, I think they, they put him in, in a matchup that I, I think they probably thought was favorable for him. Um, he looked good in the first round, uh, just couldn't get the finish there, and ultimately Cardio got him there in the second round. And I'll be interested to see how Bellator uh, moves forward with uh, – with Baby Slice, which, uh, Sam, I did ask him. I did an interview with him, and I, I said, I go, so do you prefer Kevin or Baby Slice? He goes, oh, call me Baby Slice or just call me Slice. <laughs> Here's an interesting one that I throw at you. Let's say Dana White didn't give Sam Punk a second fight, and they released him. You could do Baby Slice for Sam Punk. That, yeah, that's could. got money. That's got money written all over it for Bellator. If they could somehow get their hands on Sam Punk, you do Punk versus Slice. Money. Oh, I that, yeah, that, that would be a, a definitely a, a money fight there. Uh, next up from at Mears222, your thoughts on Lorenz Larkin's free agency. Uh, his exclusive negotiating period uh, ended on Monday, so now he is free to talk 
to other organizations. And, uh, you know, he's got a fighting style that uh, all promotions love. A guy that likes to go out there, has strikes, has done well since going down to 170 pounds. His last disclosed pay was 39000 a show, 39000 a win. Um, I think the belt that UFC would probably match anything in the 50 to 55-ish to show and win. Um, I don't see the UFC going any higher. So if Bellator, I don't see Bellator going any higher than that. Yeah, I mean he's kind of he's in a weird he's in a weird position. But uh, I, I could see maybe if Bellator came in at fifty and fifty, that the UFC maybe doesn't match it. I just you know Lorenz Larkin, a good fighter like Ryan Bader, good fighter, just not also like Ryan Bader, not a needle mover. And you look at Bellator's business model; they're not a pay per view company. They don't rely necessarily on ticket sales to survive. They're, they exist because they are a TV property, and their main business model is built around being a ratings provider for Spike. And to pay someone like Lorenz Larkin 50 and 50 to be someone that just appears on your show who adds credibility to your cards but isn't a, a, a needle mover – doesn't seem like a very sound investment to me no it's uh and look and when you play out the exclusive negotiating period what happens if you get an offer from a bellator world series of fighting that's less than what the ufc initially offered now i mean it's a chance you do take when you play out this game because when i was talking to georgie karahanian uh who was a free agent uh not after this most recent fight but his fight before i asked him i said he's like how did free agency play out for you and he said he goes you know he goes, I knew that I was going to have to wait 90 days if I wanted to see what, what anybody else offer. And he goes, you know what? I wanted a paycheck. So I took, I took, he goes, Bellator made me a, an offer I was happy with, so I took it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. But here's the difference between the typical MMA manager and the typical agent in the major sports. Even though it's illegal, whether it's MMA or NBA, Major League Baseball, the NFL, NHL, it's an illegal across the board to – negotiate with someone else's athlete. However, the really good agents in those other sports, they somehow find out how much their guy's worth before they hit the open market. The really yeah. good ones, the really pow- the power brokers. There really aren't any types of agents or managers in MMA that can do that. And the only way the fighter really finds out what they're truly worth is when they hit that open market and it's really a gamble. Whereas if this was a build-up sport with real representation and i'm not saying there aren't good managers in mma but the the depth the amount in mma compared to the other sports is very very small it's minute but if this was a real sport that you know the fighters would have some idea about what their value was before they even hit the open market yeah and uh, we'll see how that plays out for him final question comes from at george one ufc fan he goes in the past I recall both of you saying the UFC would never become mainstream. Are you softening this stance yet? Uh, no. Nope. <laughs> I, you know, Conor McGregor, if he retires, UFC's in trouble. And yeah. That, that's so, you know, Conor McGregor's mainstream. Conor McGregor's competing with the NFL, Major League Baseball, and, and the NHL and the NBA. The UFC's not. If I walk into a sports bar for happy hour on a Wednesday afternoon, Outside of Connor, Ronda, John Jones, how many other fighters get named by that those people at happy hour at a sports bar? You know, maybe they named CM Punk and Mickey Gall. 
I mean, and that, but to me, that is how you would help. You know, part of say is can it become more mainstream? And obviously, you know, with with the new UFC ownership, you know, they could you know do what they can. But you know, Sam, you mentioned without if they cannot come to an agreement with with Conor McGregor, they're in trouble. They are in trouble. You know, Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, you really don't make them. They're born. I hear a lot of people talking about Mackenzie Dern and, and, and Kayla Harrison talking about how they could be really big and how Mackenzie Dern could be the next Ronda Rousey. And Mackenzie Dern could end up in the UFC and become a, a, a very strong draw, but I, I don't know if she's going to be another Ronda. I don't think you can make another Ronda. I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there's a factory. I don't think there's a template. I think that, yes, you have to do some things as a promoter to help that athlete that special talent reach their full manifestation of as being a star but there's something innate something inherent that has to exist within that person that allows them to become as big of a star as someone like connor or ronda doesn't matter how big of a machine is behind them how strong the platform is how many marketing resources can be put behind them you know, you're you're either going to be a star or you're not. You know, money can't buy star qualities. Here's the question: Today's UFC, outside of Conor, Ronda, and maybe you throw John Jones in this aspect, what fighters can pull over four hundred thousand pay per view buys? No one. I mean, it, and and that to me is you know, and it and it used to be maybe you, the UFC could stack a card and. You know, just based on the overall depth of fights one through five, they they could do a number close to that. But the, the the sometimes, you know, they're doing so many shows now, and sometimes the the good fights are spread thin, and the depth isn't there. There's especially no opportunity for them to hit a number like that now. They, they, you know, that I just remember watching the shows. You know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, and, you know, it, from the first fight to the last fight, you were glued. You know, you, you were hooked. There wasn't any kind of down energy. There wasn't any kind of come down. You know, you, you wanted to see every fight on the show. And, and, you know, sometimes there wasn't that big main event, but because all five fights were so good, you, you, paid, you paid the 40 to 50 bucks anyway, and that doesn't happen anymore. No, it does. I mean... You know, and you look at this weekend's UFC card, and they've got a tough time selling that one. I mean, it's it, it doesn't have the name value. I mean, look, it's got a, a very good main event of Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson, but after that, and um, you know, and I, I've said this publicly, I, I won't be watching the UFC live. I'll be watching the Florida State Florida game on Saturday night. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's got to be the thing. The UFC, they just, they have to get, uh, their fan base interested and it doesn't look like in 2017, they're, they're slowing down with the amount of cars they're doing. You know, sometimes uh, I think they just put cards out there that people just say, uh, I'll, I'll put that on DVR and I'll watch it sometime later. I'll tell you what MMA has become. It's become boxing. It's, it's become one fight shows and, and the, the pay-per-views that do well are just big mega fights. And that to me is what boxing is. Yeah. It's uh it's interesting to see what happens. By the way, uh, John Nash uh, asked this question for you. Is uh, asked for you going on next week's show? I guess I should be asking this as well. So I, I got to figure out who my co-host for it is for next week. As much as I would love to be, Jason, I just it, you know I'm not going to be able to. The reason why I was able to do it this week, is, you know, it worked out for me. You know, two of the companies that I work for, you know, starting Thursday, they're going to be shut down for four days. So it just 
worked out that I, that I have time and, you know, there could be an opportunity for me, you know, if you're doing a show at the end of November, uh, at the end of December, that I might be able to do another one then too, just because both companies, again, shutting down for Christmas for four days. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I will, will not be on the show next week, John. Well, it means I'm going to be going through my Rolodex to figure out who's going to be my co-host for next week. But, of course, you can listen to this show on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search the MMA Insiders. Also, check out the show, RadioInfluence.com, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. Be sure to be following me on Twitter, at Jason underscore Floyd, and I'll be letting you know who's going to be the co-host here on the next edition of the MMA Insiders podcast. Sam, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to talk here uh, at the end of December, man. Yeah, I would normally say I'll see you next week, but I'll I'll see everybody when I see them. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. Radio Influence brings you the best in digital media broadcasting. When it comes to sports, we've got experts like national sports radio host Rich Herrera, the fabulous sports babe, former Major League Baseball manager Kevin Kennedy, and former Bellator matchmaker Sam Kaplan. Want a good laugh? Then go on the beach with Pants and Roller Girl, or just LOL with Nancy Alexander. And when it comes to real life, Dangerous Conversation with Scott Ledger and Beyond the Badge with Vincent Hill will make you think when it comes to what you want radio influence has you covered find our programming on itunes stitcher tune in radio and radioinfluence.com